gospel. I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word, Luke 23, verses 1 to 43. The word of the Lord tells us this, Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection and murder the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For, the, for if the people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what, we deserve, what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In his first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, if you've ever read it, you know that there is a wide variety of topics addressed there that Paul talks about. We find things such as spiritual gifts, uh, orderliness of worship in the the worship service. We see him addressing sexual immorality, topic of marriage, singleness, the Lord's Supper, as we read about, the resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, many other topics important topics to be that, but in chapter 2, verse 2, 1 Corinthians, Paul says some of his most famous words, and you might have heard this when when I read it. Paul wrote, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I kind of know it through the King James verbiage, for I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now for our ears today, that may sound a little odd for our English. Uh, it just what, what, is it, what does he mean by that? But basically what Paul is saying is this. Of all the different facets in the Christian life, of all the different very important topics that I'm going to talk about, that I can talk about, what is of utmost importance is this. The cross of Christ. What is of utmost importance for you to know is Jesus Christ and him crucified. State it differently, the crux of the matter is the cross of Christ. The word crux is the Latin word from, by which we get cross and um, right, the, the crux of the matter. The crux of the matter is the cross of Christ. Week after week, I say it, put it in the bulletin, I put it up on the screen now, we gather to know God's word. But we don't gather to just study a book to have a history lesson and then go home. We study the written word, so that we might encounter the living word, Jesus Christ. Or in other words, we spend time in the written word so that we might come to know the living word, Jesus Christ. And what you might wonder, what's so important about that? What's so great about that? What did Jesus say in John chapter 17, verse 3? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life? Eternal life is abundant life, the rich life, the fulfilled life, the life by which we thrive and flourish. To experience that life, how do you do that? You come to know God. You come to know Jesus Christ personally. Not know about Jesus, but to know Jesus personally. So, if you and I are going to know Christ and Him crucified, we do very well to spend time in the Passion Narrative. So as we walk through the text, quite a big chunk of Scripture today. We'll try to move along in a, in a breeze, um, in a good, quick pace. But for you and I to know Christ and Him crucified, what we're going to see in the text are two aspects of His identity and two demonstrations of His heart. Or, to keep it simple, to know Christ and Him crucified. From the text, we see, number one, His innocence of sin. Number two, his incarnation of grace and truth. Number three, his interchange with Barabbas. And then finally, his interaction with the thief. And our goal again is to know Christ and him crucified. So firstly, Jesus' innocence of sin, verses 1 to 25. 
You may recall, piggybacking back up from uh, two weeks ago when I was here, Jesus is now being brought before the civil magistrate. He's being brought before the secular leaders. The Jews have already grilled him, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the council of the elders, the chief priests, teachers of the law. They have already done their grilling, their interrogation, but they do not have the power for capital punishment. That resides among the civil government. So they bring Jesus before Pilate initially, and then he's brought before Herod, then Pilate again. But the goal is to get Jesus to die. Right? They want the death sentence to be brought upon this man. So Pilate now, humanly speaking, he has the responsibility of determining and deciphering, is this man innocent and can he go free? Or is this man guilty and should I put him to death? Or have him beaten at the very least? So this is on Pilate's shoulders. And for Pilate to arrive at a conclusion, what does he do? He sifts through different accusations against Jesus. A few of them. Number one, verse two, he subverts the nation. Or he misleads, he perverts the nation. Number two, from verse two as well, he forbids payment of taxes to Caesar. Number three, he claims to be Messiah, a king, also from verse two. From verse five, Jesus stirs people up all over Judea by his teaching. And then from verse 14, Jesus incites the people to rebellion, in parentheses, against the government. That's what they're alluding to. Now, there's some truth to what they're saying, right? Does Jesus mislead the nation? Yes and no. Depends on who, by who you're asking that, right? To the religious leaders, Jesus is misleading them. But certainly, Jesus is leading them in the way of truth in the way of grace. But to them, no, Jesus is misleading us. Does Jesus forbid payment of taxes to Caesar? That one's blatantly false. Well, Jesus claims to be Messiah, a king. Yes, he's done that several times throughout his ministry and right there in front of them. Does Jesus stir people up all over Judea by his teaching? Right? Yes and no. He does qu- cause quite a stir. A lot of people are opposed to him violently, but in the other sense, he does stir up a lot of people's hearts and many people follow him, right? So there's some truth, just like a lot at the times. Somebody says something negative about you, there might be a kernel of truth found there. But nevertheless, Pilate must sift through all of this. And even though, as we see, and as we know, if you know the Passion narrative, we know that Pilate is ultimately a wet noodle. But Pilate has enough common sense, enough common grace from God to know that Jesus is an innocent man. He has enough common sense to know that because three separate times Pilate says this. And any time in Scripture when something is repeated three times back to back, it's the way the author is saying this is a strong point of emphasis. You might recall from Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord, what does he say? Holy, holy, holy. And here in the text, Pilate three different times says, innocent, innocent, innocent. Look at verse 4. I find no basis for a charge against this man. Verse 14. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Verse 15. This is kind of another one. But neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Verse 22. For the third time, Pilate spoke to them. Why? 
What crime has this man committed? I found in him no ground for the death penalty. And then in Matthew 27, verse 19, Pilate's wife relayed a message to him and said, don't have anything to do with that innocent man because I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Jesus' innocence is clearly interwoven in this passage, but throughout all of Scripture as a whole. Isaiah 53, verse 9. He, Jesus, was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, here's the key, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He spoke nothing, he did nothing wrong. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, Peter quotes from that very same verse in Isaiah, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So brothers and sisters, if you and I are going to know Christ and him crucified, you must know of his innocence of sin, that he is completely innocent of any wrongdoing. But that leads us to the second point, that is his incarnation of grace and truth. Because when you come to know Jesus, you do need to know who he is not, but also who he is. Okay, we've just gone over what he is not, which is Jesus is not guilty of sin. He is not deserving of the death penalty. He is not a wicked man. He is not satanic. He is not bad. Okay, I got that. Pilate gets that to a degree, right? He is innocent. What is he positively? What is he proactively? Who is he de- what is he defined by? What are the positive characteristics of this man? Well, as we saw a couple weeks ago, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the King of the universe. But as we reflect, remember, we're coming to a close in the Gospel of Luke. As we reflect over the entirety of his life and ministry, I remind you today that this is not just a man. He's not just an innocent man. This is God incarnate. The one who came, as John 1.14 talks about, the one who came full of grace and truth. This is who the Messiah is. Now, perhaps most importantly, you might be wondering, where do you see that in the text? Because though it might be true, I want everything I say to be rooted in the text. Where do you see that here? You subtly are reminded of it, and it's pointed to in verse 5 and verse 8. Look there with me. Listen to what the opposition says about Jesus. He stirs the people up all over Judea by his teaching. Okay? And then verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. What do I see there? Why do I bring that up? Jesus' enemies, his adversaries, are quite familiar with two of the major components of his life and ministry. What are they? His teaching and his miracles. Even Jesus' enemies know that there's something significant and weighty about what he does by what he says and by what he does. The first group, right, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, what they're angry about, he stirs people up all over Judea by his teaching. They're angry at his teaching, and through Christ's teaching, we know his truth. But then Herod in verse 8, he's familiar with Jesus' miracles, the signs, the wonders he had done. Now, Herod doesn't bow before Christ in a humble manner. He wants Jesus to do a miracle for him as a type of circus trick. 
So neither of them fully grasp and fully appreciate and understand what Jesus has done. But nevertheless, for you and I today, anybody who wants to have a anybody who wants to know Christ and to know him crucified, they must know that he is a man who came full of grace and truth, a man who taught the truth and who demonstrated grace by his miracles. Now to be clear, you cannot bifurcate the two. All right, so it's not as though Jesus just spoke truth and then everything that Jesus did was all grace because every word that came from Jesus' mouth overflowed with grace, dripped with grace. And every gracious miracle that Jesus performed always, always, always pointed back to the truth. He always did a miracle to remind people, hey, this is who God is. This is who I am. Come to me for your ultimate healing. So brothers and sisters, if you and I, are going to know Christ and Him crucified, you must know that He's not just an innocent man. You must know that Jesus is God incarnate, the one who came full of grace and truth. This is the man who would hang upon the cross. Then thirdly, those are the two aspects of His identity. Here are two demonstrations of His heart. Number three, His interchange with Barabbas. Verses 17 to 25. In the time of the Passover, keep in mind this is when this is occurring. The time of the Passover. The festival of unleavened bread, a time of rejoicing, a time of great community among the Jewish people. And it was custom at that time, we know from the other gospel accounts, it was custom for the governor to release a prisoner of the crowd's choosing. We don't know precisely why that happened. Perhaps the governor just wanted to curry favor with the Jewish people. Maybe a majority of people wanted a certain guy and they liked him. All right, you know what? You can have him. And, right? Because the Jews and the Romans, they wanted to maintain this kind of dance, if you will. They, the Jews wanted the graces of the government, but the government also didn't want an unruly people. So there's this back and forth kind of dance in, in keeping the peace. So it was custom at this time, release a prisoner. This is the case. And what does the crowd chant in verse 18? Away with this man, which is, you know, another way of saying, get rid of him, kill him. We don't want this man in our sight, dispose of him, release Barabbas to us. And the author, the gospel author here, he is overwhelmingly clear that Barabbas is the guilty party. When you read the narrative, whether you're Christian or not, you should see that clearly in the text that Barabbas is overwhelmingly the guilty party, as verse 19 talks about. He is the one who had been thrown into prison. He is the one who had been a part of a violent insurrection. And he is the cold-blooded murderer. And Pilate is torn. He knows Jesus is innocent and therefore deserves life and freedom. He knows Barabbas is a horrible wretch deserving prison and death. The crowd is given the option, choose. What does the crowd choose? injustice. They choose Barabbas. As one commentator said, the blindness and illogical nature of sin are on full display here. And when Jesus takes the place of Barabbas, what we see is a clear picture of our own story. Because if you acknowledge in your own life, we are the guilty party. We are the lawbreakers. We are the ones deserving of death. But Jesus is the perfect one, 
the innocent one, but he swapped places with us. I saw another quote recently. It said something to the effect of, the damned in life think that they are good, but the saved in life know they are wicked. It's kind of an interesting point. The damned in life think they are good, but those who are saved, those who are redeemed by Christ, they know that they are guilty. They know that they are the sinners. And what we see in the text is Christ swapping places for you and I. He suffers unjustly so that we can be blessed by his mercy. Jesus dies so that we might live. Jesus is imprisoned, bound in chains, so that we can go free. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 2 Corinthians 5.7 Some of you might know this memory verse. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 9, read that later. That's some of your heavenly homework for today, all right? Read that later. You might be familiar with that passage, but it's clear, overwhelmingly clear. Jesus takes the place of you and I, takes the punishment we deserve. As that hymn, Hallelujah, what a Savior says, in my place condemned, he stood. So brothers and sisters, if you and I today are going to know Christ and know him crucified, you must see the divine exchange that took place because this is the heart of the gospel. But it's not only past tense in terms of that what Christ did, it's also what Christ offers to broken people like you and me. We see that lastly, number four, in his interaction with a thief. In verse 26, well, verses 23 and following, Pilate abdicated his leadership. He bowed the knee to sin, bowed the knee to peer pressure, and he sent Jesus off to be flogged and to be crucified. So as verse 26 talks about, Jesus makes his way through the streets, uh, going to the hilltop. The text says, a group of women followed closely behind him, weeping over their master. And I love what one commentator pointed out about this little episode going on here, particularly highlighting the role of the ladies. The commentator said, There is no instance in any of the four Gospels of a woman being hostile to Jesus. Throughout the Christmas narrative and the entirety of Jesus' life and ministry, women have played regular and important roles in the third Gospel. But beginning with this verse... They play heightened roles as witnesses of the crucifixion and of the resurrection. So put that in the back of your mind because in a couple weeks, we're going to draw back upon that regarding Jesus' resurrection because it's quite significant how God values women and uses them to spread the gospel um, after his resurrection. But I want to I look at the scene on Golgotha, though. Golgotha, depending on how you pronounce it, which is in English the place of, of the skull. So two other criminals are led up the mountaintop with Jesus, one to be crucified on his right, one on his left. And look at verses 39 and 43. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence. 
We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And if you back up a little bit, but the two men are being crucified alongside him, being executed by him. But then Jesus famously says in verse 33 and 34, that everybody's heaping insults on him. Verse 39, it only mentions one of the thieves, or one of the criminals, heaping insults. But as the other Gospels tell us, both men initially were accusing Jesus and mocking him. So there's just this cacophony of noise all around Jesus of mocking abuse and verbal abuse and, and all this kind of stuff. And then Jesus says in verse 33, or verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is astounding. In Jesus' final moments of his earthly life, he kept serving, kept loving, kept pouring out his life for the broken and for the lost. He comforted the women. He prayed for his enemies. And then, in the Thief on the Cross episode, he forgives and pays attention to this broken, humbled man. But the very last breath, Jesus poured out his life for the sake of others. And Luke, it's significant. Luke is the only one who records that one of the thieves repents. You might be wondering, where's the thief note here? Because it just says criminal. On the other Gospels, depending upon the translation you use, it might just use the word rebel, or it might use the word robber, hence thief on the cross. We don't know fully what crimes they committed, but we do know that this was not just for a little infraction against the law. The person who died on the cross died a scandalous, horrible death. Somebody who did the worst types of things in society. So this was truly a scoundrel. But he, on the very, on his deathbed, if you will, he recognized the innocence of Christ, the perfection of Christ, and the guiltiness, the brokenness of his self. Don't you fear God, verse 40, since you are under the same judgment, same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, alluding to and acknowledging that Jesus is the all-powerful king. And you have to ask the question, how was this man saved? This is one text I, I constantly bring up when I talk with Mormons. How was this man saved? It was not by volunteering in the church. It was not by being a good citizen. It was not by getting baptized, though those are all important things to do. This man was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As Romans 10.13 talks about, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. This man called upon the name of Christ and he was saved. This is the mercy of our Lord. And if any of you ever have this inclination, I, I'll tell you that there's a part of me that wrestles with it and thinks, well, that's just not fair. I mean, this guy, he was saved on his deathbed. He lived a horrible life. You know, I, I was saved earlier on or at a younger age, and, you know, I had to go to church and do all these types of things. This man didn't have to do anything. If you, if you think that in any way, th- this is unfair. This man gets the same welcome as you might get, having lived for Christ for 50 years. You are misunderstanding grace. Because this man didn't deserve it on his deathbed. 
you didn't deserve it 50 years ago. It is both grace, overwhelmingly grace, both times. And the last thing I want to mention about this thief on the cross is this. Have you ever thought about this? How do you think this guy's mother thought of him? The thief on the cross, his mother. How do you think she thought of her son? If she just observed his life, right? it's not like she, she was in the dark about this, assuming she was still alive. Her shameful scoundrel of a son withering on the cross. How heavy of a heart she must have had to hear about this, to see her son doing this. She may not have had any hope about him or for him. But brothers and sisters, the hope that I see in the text and that I share with you is that she might have, she probably did not know what happened there. Again, to the eye, the blind eye, he's, he's a horrible guy. Died a nasty death. It might have only been Jesus and this man who knew what happened in the final moments of his life. For you today, it does not matter how far gone you may be. It does not matter how far gone a family member of yours may be. The grace of Jesus is offered to everyone to the very last moment. This is how merciful and great our God is. We don't know what happens on deathbeds. right? Thank God that people are saved when they're young, saved in the middle of their age, but we don't know what happens on people's deathbeds. Only the Lord does. And that lets us know there's always hope for somebody. There's always hope. I encourage you, don't wait until your deathbed to ask Him for that. That, That's an abuse of His grace. We certainly shouldn't tread lightly on that. The simple question is, do you ask Him daily for that mercy? And if you have, do you thank Him daily for that mercy? Brothers and sisters, in the Christian life, as the Apostle Paul reminded us, it is of utmost importance that you know Christ and you know Him crucified. I hope you've seen in this crucifixion narrative that our Lord is innocent. But not only that, I hope you've seen that He is the one who came from God, who is God incarnate, full of grace and truth. I hope you've seen the divine interchange, exchange that took place between the righteous and the unrighteous, swapping places. And I hope you rejoice in the mercy of our Lord and Savior that He offers to the most vile to the very last second. This is the God we serve. Hallelujah, what a Savior, as that beautiful hymn talks about. Let's close in prayer, and then we'll uh, close with the doxology. Father, we thank You that in the midst of our brokenness, You show us grace grace and patience time and time again. 
we don't deserve the next breath we take, but you give it to us as a gift. And Holy Spirit, for those of us who are saved, for those of us who know you personally, will you please help us not to waste our breath? Please help us not to waste the strength that you've given us. Help us to cherish your grace, to cherish your mercy, the clearest demonstration of that being through transformed, godly, holy life. Please help us to keep the cross at the center of our lives, to know Christ and Him crucified. Help us in our weakness. Help us when we fail. In times of triumph, times of success, in times of peace, may we give thanks to you. In times of struggle, in times of doubt, in times of sin and temptation, help us cry out to you for help and strength. Apart from you, we are nothing but in you and through you, we can do all things. Be with your people now as we depart. Anchor our hearts in your word until we reunite again. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen. Will you stand and sing the doxology with us?